Hello, and welcome to the Commander Theory Podcast. I'm Nick Beatman, and I'm here with my friend, Zach Mack. Hello, everyone. So we've got a very special episode today. This is Super Secret Tech. There is a lot of um, commanders out there. There's plenty of like unknown synergies with these commanders, and we so we want to spend this episode highlighting a couple of cards that may have slipped under people's radars. So criteria we're using to determine what makes something secret tech is it's in less than 4% of the commander's decks on EDH rec. We're also only limiting ourselves to cards that are less than $10 so that the lack of usage can't be explained by like, oh, people know about the card, but the price tag is so high that they just aren't going to aren't going to shell out the money for it. And we're also focusing on cards that offer a powerful or unique synergy. We're not going to really focus on like, okay, you may a bunch of decks are playing explosive vegetation, but nobody's playing migration path. Like we're, we're looking at cards that don't have a lot of easy alternatives that people may be running instead. And we're, we're focusing on things that do something that is powerful and unique and will often put you in a, a really good position or potentially win you the game. But before we jump into these cards, I want to briefly talk about our Patreon. If you head on over to patreon.com slash commander theory, you can support the show and get sweet benefits for as little as $1 a month. If you aren't ready to be a patron yet, you can help us out by rating or reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. All right, we can jump into the first piece of tech. This actually works for two commanders. Do you want to read off this card? Yeah. So the card is one I'm not sure many people listening will remember. Uh, This is Mirror of Fate. This is a five mana artifact from M10, and I'm pretty sure it was only printed in M10. It has tap, sacrifice, mirror of fate, choose up to seven face up exiled cards you own, exile all the cards from your library, then put the chosen cards on top of your library. So basically, what you're doing is you get to turn some cards that have been exiled into your library. (laughs) Normally, this is a little bit difficult to make work. It is useful if you want to exile your entire library for one for some reason. If you want to go off with like a lab man or a um, boss's oracle win. But generally, it's hard for most decks to make use of this because they don't have enough cards naturally in exile for you to uh, stack a really good deck upon activating this card. But there are a couple commanders that are uniquely powerful with this. And that's because if you happen to do two Mirror of Fates, then it actually becomes good because the first one will exile your entire library. And then the second one will stack a library of up to seven cards in the order you want of any cards that were already in your library. So it's basically a doomsday, but you don't have to pay any life and you can have as few cards as you want. So the the two commanders that work particularly well with this card are Kirkesh Onaki Ancient, which is two red red for a four three ogre spirit. Whenever you activate an ability of an artifact, if it isn't a mana ability, you may pay red. If you do copy that ability, you may choose new targets for the copy. And the other commander is Thanos Urza's Apprentice blue and a red for a 1-3 human artificer with haste. Blue, red, tap, copy target activated or triggered ability you control from an artifact source. You may choose new targets for the copy. So both of these commanders allow you to copy that Mirror of Fate ability, and then you can just stack your deck perfectly from there. In the case of Thanos, that puts you in a really, really easy position to win 
because you're in a blue color identity, you have access to Thassa's Oracle, you can just turn that into an, into an instant win by activating the Mirror of Fate at the end of your opponent's turn, copying it with Thanos, and then your turn, I draw Thassa's Oracle, win the game. With Kirkesh, you have to work a little bit harder, but there are some good combos in, the, in a mono-red color identity that you can set up easily with this Mirror of Fate. Oh, maybe, yeah. Yeah, maybe you just put like, a wheel of fortune well maybe not a wheel of fortune maybe, <laughs> maybe you put like a, a cathartic reunion or a thrill of possibility on top of the pile so that you can draw both of your combo pieces um one easy thing that you can do is do some of the other kirkesh combos like a basalt monolith and a way to filter mana is infinite mana of all colors with kirkesh so that's something you can do and then you just need to some sort of mana outlet also within your mirror of fate pile but this is actually the the impetus for the entire episode because when we looked on edh rec as of the time of recording mirror of fate is in zero out of 124 kirkesh decks on edh rec and it's mm-hmm. also in zero of 147 tanos decks on edh rec so this is tech that nobody appears to be aware of at this time and so you're, you're hearing it for the first time here if you have a kirkesh or tanos deck this is a card I would I would take a close look at. Yeah, all the cards we're going to talk about today are cards where the synergy is like so high, it really is kind of baffling that no one has figured it out or like posted about it online, I guess. People talk about uh, and I think this episode is going to go into disproving the idea that commanders kind of solved. A new commander comes out and people post deck lists and they go, okay, that's what that commander does. But I think stuff slips through the cracks. There's also like alternate takes you can have on commanders that work out in various ways. And the fact that the all of these cards we're talking about have been around for years now, some longer than others, but the fact that they haven't been combined, I guess, is kind of amazing to me because synergy, the top end is so high. Moving on to the next piece of tech. This is Patron of the Orochi. Six green green for a 7-7 seven, seven spirit with snake offering. So you can cast it anytime you could cast an instant by sacrificing a snake and paying the difference in between mana cost between this and the snake. And then it has tap, untap all forests and all green creatures. Activate this ability only once each turn. So this is a powerful card. I love this card. I'm going to interrupt you to just say this is... I've played with Patron of the Orochi in a lot of lists, and it's like the most Timmy thing you can do. It's so much fun. Yeah, the fact that it untaps itself just means that in a multiplayer format, you're getting four activations per round of turn. It's enormous amounts of mana. Um, If you have a sync for that, it's just a way to get a great advantage over your opponents. But the commander that we wanted to pair this with is Mael the Anima, which is red, green, white for a 2-3 elf shaman. And she has three red, green, white tap. Look at the top five cards of your library. You may put a creature card with power five or greater from among them onto the battlefield. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. So Patron has great synergy with Mael. Not only is it something, not only is it a creature that Mael can drop in if you see her in the top five, but also it allows you to untap your Mael, untap a lot of your mana sources, and just activate Mael multiple times per round of turns. So it's a great synergy there, and it's only seeing play currently in 11 out of the 914 Mael decks on EDH Rec. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, and, and it's especially surprising because. 
almost 50% of Mael decks run Seedborn Muse, and Seedborn Muse untaps all your creatures and lands during each opponent's untap step. So it's a very similar effect, but Seedborn Muse, you can't hit it off Mael the Anima. And in terms of price tag, they're basically the same. Seedborn Muse is currently $8.31 on TCG Player Mid, and Patron of the Orochi is $8.30. So almost exactly the same effect, almost exactly the same price, but Patron has that added benefit where it doesn't decrease your density of fatties and like lower your hit rate in the same way that Seedborn Muse does. Yeah, we had a friend of the show, Alex Whiteclay, who a long time ago, me and him were in a commander league together and alex played a mile list and it had just a ton of fatties and it had patron the Yorochi and every time patron would come out you knew it was just bad news and he would if he hit it off the top you just felt like like you had to do something quick someone had to find a rat or something like that even though this was like a timmy stomp list could very well die when out of nowhere 20 power is on the battlefield because a round of turns went by and you were able to pop mile off four times so definitely for all the reasons nick said i just think the fact that it's a seedborn muse that you can hit with her ability is just too good to pass up i think every version of mile could use this card it's crazy yes thanks very much to alex whiteclay for submitting this one and this next energy uh it also comes to us from alex whiteclay although you know funnily enough i think we we mentioned this energy like back way back when when we were doing one of our set reviews um and i just assumed that people had adopted it but alex pointed out like no this card is not seeing play in the list you would expect so this is planar chaos uh two and a red for an enchantment at the beginning of your upkeep flip a coin if you lose the flip sacrifice planar chaos and whenever a player casts a spell that player flips a coin if they lose the flip counter that spell I think people see this most of the time in like chaos, lol, random lists mm-hmm. a lot. So you might be wondering like why we're bringing it up now. Are we going to say like you need to put this in your uh, your Norin deck? Yeah, or- exactly. No. What if you could keep playing your game when everyone else couldn't? So the commander that Alex brought up was Surak Dragon Claw, which is a six six flash for two green, blue, red. Uh, Surak cannot be countered. Creature spells you control can't be countered, and all of your creatures have trample. So, as you might be able to tell, there's a huge amount of synergy here. It's it's just off the wall. It's crazy. Yeah, everyone else is just losing half the spells they cast. But as long as you're committed to only casting creature spells, then Planar Chaos is going to have no effect on you. You're going to be able to continue playing your game as normal. Whereas your opponents have this like awful calculus of like, how bad would it be if this spell does not resolve? Am I willing to commit a bunch of mana to this given that there's a chance that it doesn't even happen? So they're in this like awful position of like either losing half their spells or just not doing anything with their turns mana and waiting for the planar chaos to eventually die. Yeah, and I've been on the other end of the planar chaos where you're sitting there like, well, I did just get a spell countered, but I was trying to kill Planar Chaos, so I'll just, it, it's got a 50% chance to live. Like, I'm just not going to do anything. Oh, and, you just like then, gambler's fallacy it. Oh, I, it owes me a spell now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I'm going to sit here and uh, see on the upkeep what happens. It's probably going to die pretty soon. And then it sticks around and you're stuck another turn and you're like, okay, um, draw a card, play land. Uh, wow, things are looking pretty bad, but uh, I really don't 
don't want to waste my six drop, so I'm going to pass. And then Player of Chaos wins the flip and sticks around, and all of a sudden you've just like time walked yourself two turns. Yeah. It's really, really bad. And if all the while, like your opponents are time walking themselves and you're just sitting there, the bear lord casting your enormous fatties. Yeah. Then I'm pretty sure you can win pretty quickly after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a great piece of synergy. Uh, Thank you again for submitting this, Alex. Just want to point out. So out of the 833 Sorak decks, planar chaos only sees play in two of them. So that's a, almost no adoption at all and i think this is a great piece of tech for that commander yeah and it's an uncommon from judgment so it there aren't too many around but they're not pushing too much of a price tag at this point i'm pretty sure oh yeah it's planar chaos is currently sitting at a dollar 61 tcg player yeah pretty pretty budget option to just win the game in your team or deck yeah. So uh, do you want to get into the next uh, the next batch? Sure. This is actually two pieces of tech for a recent commander, but both of them are really strong in this list, mostly because of the cards that are naturally already in this deck. So the first is Nim Death Mantle, which is two mana for an equipment. Equipped creature gets plus two plus two, has Intimidate, and is a black zombie. Whenever a non-token creature is put into your graveyard from the battlefield, you can pay four. If you do, return it to the battlefield and attach Nim Death Mantle to it, and it has equipped for four. The other card is Boon Weaver Giant, which is six and a white for a 4-4 Giant Monk. When it enters the battlefield, you can search your graveyard hand and or library for an aura card and put it onto the battlefield attached to Boon Weaver Giant. If you search their library this way, shuffle it. So both of these cards work really, really well if you have a deck with a lot of sack outlets uh, and some other graveyard recursion cards. I'll, I guess I'll I'll start with Nim Death Mantle. So if you have something like an Ashnod's Altar or a Phyrexian Altar that sacrifices creatures for mana, creature that generates tokens, or a way to get multiple creatures off of like a single Nim Death Mantle recursion, then you can set yourself up for an infinite graveyard recursion loop. That works pretty well. And Aura Skyclave Hierophant, the new cleric commander from Zendikar Rising, is a perfect fit for this card. The Aura Skyclave Hierophant is two white-black for a 3-3 core cleric with lifelink. When it or another cleric you control dies, return target cleric card with lesser converted mana cost from your graveyard to the battlefield. So Aura is naturally running Ashnod's Altar. It's naturally running Phyrexian Altar. And it's also just running a bunch of other sack outlets to make use of your clerics, convert them into resources while triggering your aura. And even if you don't have your Ashnods or Phyrexian altar, just having a Nib Death Mantle out in this deck is really, really powerful. For example, if you have like aura or maybe like a five mana cleric, just paying four mana to go all the way down the chain, like I sack aura, return it with Death Mantle, get back a three drop. I sack my three drop, get back a two drop. I sack my two drop, get back a one drop. Like going all the way down the staircase for just four mana is an enormous amount of value. In addition to whatever effects your clerics may have themselves, like getting an aura off of a Heliod's Pilgrim or exiling a creature permanently with a Fiend Hunter, you're going to have other effects in your deck that trigger off of your creatures dying, like a, a Grim Haru Specs or a Midnight Reaper or Grave Pact. You're going to be getting a bunch of value and even if you're not going infinite with the death mantle, it's just very powerful. It makes your your chains really resilient and makes it so that you you can get them more often. So I think that's a great fit for the deck. And it's currently only seeing play in seven out of 289 aura decks on EDH rec. 
So really, really low adoption, but I think it's a crucial card. So Boonweaver Giant, um, it's not itself a cleric, which I think is why most people are missing on this. It's yeah. uh, in zero out of 289 aura decks. But the things that are needed in, in order to make Boonweaver Giant effective uh, naturally fit into an aura deck. So you've got all your sack outlets, which are really crucial for making Boonweaver Giant work. And then also Gift of Immortality is, I think, a very good card in Aura for the same reasons that Nim Deathmail is good. I don't know if you've played any games against me so far where I had like Aura with a Gift of Immortality on it. Oh, um, no, but that sounds disgusting. Yeah, I, I've found it to be very oppressive so far um, just because <laughs> you're able to, in the same way that like Nim Deathmail, you're able to go uh, all the way down the chain for four mana. With a gift of immortality, you're able to go all the way down a chain multiple times per round of turns. So it's very strong. Gift of immortality is two and a white for an aura with enchant creature. When enchanted creature dies, return that card to the battlefield under its owner's control. Return gift of immortality to the battlefield attached to that creature at the beginning of the next end step. So if you put that on an aura or maybe a different high CMC cleric, you can sacrifice that, bring it back with the gift of immortality get the next smallest thing in the chain and then go all the way down. And then Gift of Immortality is going to reset itself at the beginning of the next end step and you can do it again on your next opponent's turn. That card naturally fits into Aura. And the thing about Gift of Immortality is that if you have a sack outlet and you have a Boonweaver Giant, you are able to go infinite. Um, and you don't even need to have the Gift of Immortality in your hand. You can play Boonweaver Giant on a board with just a sacrifice outlet and then search your library for the Gift of Immortality, slap it on, then sacrifice the Boonweaver Giant to your sack outlet. The Gift of Immortality is going to trigger and bring back the Boonweaver Giant. And when Boonweaver Giant enters the battlefield, you can then search your graveyard for that Gift of Immortality, put it back on the Boonweaver Giant. So you're back where you started, except you generated whatever your sack outlet produces. In this deck, that could mean infinite mana, that could mean infinite damage, infinite mill. There's a lot of very, very powerful things uh, that you can do. And Boonweaver Giant, just takes up a single slot in your deck and offers you the potential to win out of nowhere. Something I found with Boonweaver Giant is that even though he's seven mana, like you kind of usually cast him at a point when everyone is chill with the game degenerating. <laughs> so when you do end up casting your Boonweaver Giant, getting your tech, and then kind of either comboing off or just winning or getting just insurmountable value, typically... It's happening at like a really socially acceptable point in the game, I guess you could say. And because of that, I've really liked it. I've really enjoyed playing with Boonweaver Giant as a card because even though it looks clunky on the surface, it it's so good. <laughs> like you just get so much value out of it. Unlike Nim Death Mantle, which has seen its price creep up over the years, Boonweaver Giant is quite affordable at this moment yeah it's only 20 cents on tcg player so really easy to fit into your deck give it a shot they're they're awesome <laughs> all right so this next one is interesting i think i'm, I'm I, in fact i'm positive that we had mentioned this tech when this commander was first previewed yeah 100 percent, we did <laughs> yeah so this is Navinural's disc which is four mana artifact enters a battlefield tap you can pay one and tap it to destroy all artifact creatures and enchantments and then there's also Magus of the Disc, which is two white-white for a 2-4 human wizard that enters the battlefield tapped, and you can pay one, tap it, and destroy all artifact, uh, artifacts, creatures, and enchantments. So both of them do essentially the same thing. Uh, 
you know, many commander players are going to be familiar with, at least with disc, if not with both. But where they, they shine, where they're particularly good, is in Estrid the Masked. She is one green, white, blue for a three loyalty planeswalker. She has plus two, untap each enchanted permanent you control. Minus one, create a white aura enchantment token named Mask attached to another target permanent. The token has enchant permanent and totem armor. And then she also has minus seven, put the top seven cards of your library into your graveyard. Return all non-aura enchantment cards from your graveyard to the battlefield. Then do the same for aura cards. And she can be your commander. So the the trick with her is um, if you put a mask on a Navinural's disc, then uh, Navinural's disc notably does not sacrifice itself. It typically destroys itself uh, when the activation resolves. But if it has totem armor, then instead the mask is going to get destroyed. And everything except uh, Planeswalkers pretty... Well, Planeswalkers and Lands pretty much is going to blow up. Although Estrid can, of course, also put masks on your other tokens or on your other permanents in order to protect them from the activation of the disc. So it's a pretty strong strategy, great for keeping the board clear of everyone else's stuff, and you can kind of build around it. But it's it sees very little play. Out of the 1,416 decks uh, for Estrid the Masked, 0% are running Divinural's disc. That's only five decks. And only one out of the 1,416 decks are running Magus of the Disc. So extremely low rates of adoption here. Yeah, I think one of the things, too, that amazes me about Estrid is that Estrid, people who are playing Estrid don't seem to be pulling punches for the most part, which would be one of the reasons that I would assume they're not playing these cards in particular. They're playing a lot of like mana ramp aura stuff, but just seems weird to me that this would not be included she gives you like so many outlets and so many ways to like i'm wiping the board every turn where but i'm actually winning that it just seems strange to me not to include something this powerful <laughs> yeah what's really bizarre to me is the stasis appears on the edh rec page like 18 percent of these decks are running stasis but so, so they're like willing to go that far and, and do something that antisocial, but they're not running Navinural's disc for some reason. It really is crazy. So uh, definitely very good. Still blows my mind that this was uh, not adopted. Yeah, d- that one's definitely a thinker, but uh, you all heard it here for the first time. If you have an Estrid deck, please give it a shot and let us know how it works out for you. Should be pretty explosive. Oh, yeah. The next commander, or rather the next piece of tech we're going to be talking about is Grinding Station. This one was given to us by Alex Whiteclay. Thanks again, Alex. And it is two-cost artifact, tap, sacrifice an artifact. Target player puts the top three cards of their library into their graveyard. And whenever an artifact enters the battlefield, you may untap Grinding Station. So this works particularly well in Urza, Lord High Artificer. Urza is 2 blue-blue for a 1-4 human artificer. When he enters the battlefield, create a 0-0 colorless construct artifact creature token with this creature gets plus and plus 1 for each artifact you control. You can tap an untapped artifact you control to add blue, and you can pay 5 and shuffle your library, then exile the top card, and you can cast, or until end of turn, you may play that card without paying its mana cost. So the, the synergy here is that Grinding Station, you can tap it for mana with Urza, and then whenever you play another artifact, you can then untap the grinding station. 
So it really um, essentially makes all of your artifacts cost one less, but you can, of course, also funnel that mana into other things. Again, this is another head scratcher for me. It fits on two axes that Urza is working on, where it's not only like a ton of mana as you're comboing off, but it's a win condition as well for your combo. If you happen to be milling people out, which is very easy to do when, like, let's say you have a scrap drawler or something other mm-hmm. combo going, which a lot of Urza decks do. <laughs> a lot of Urza decks use Mur Retriever and Scrap Trawler and Grunt Clan Ironworks to finish people off. And it just, I could not really believe that this was not being adopted because it's it's just a better mana rock when you're not comboing with it yeah definitely an unusual one there so i'm not fully sure why it's not seeing play there's plenty of things in the deck that synergize with it or like in the typical urza build that synergize with it as you mentioned mirror retrievers in 24 percent of these decks scrap trawlers in 20 percent and currently only 31 of the 2347 urza decks are running grinding station and that's about 1.3 percent so really definitely a lot of room to adopt this card. As you said, it seems really powerful here. Yeah, and and another stat for everybody, 39% of Urza decks are running Thassa's Oracle as a win condition. Again, like, why not run Grinding Station, you know? Like, it's a, it's a mystery. In terms of really easily comparable cards, 69% of these Urza decks run Ethereum Sculptor which Mm -hmm. is one in a blue for one, two artifact spells you cast cost one less to cast. So grinding station essentially does that, but it's less vulnerable to creature removal. And it will win you the game eventually. And that too. Yeah. So definitely super powerful. I don't know. I I guess if I lose to an Urza playing grinding station, I'll be a little bit happier. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, Moving on to the next piece of tech. This one was really surprising. Um, this was given to us also by Alex Whiteclay. Alex doing some heavy lifting on this episode. Oh, yeah. So this is Workhorse. Six mana for a 0-0 zero, zero artifact creature. It enters the battlefield with four plus and plus one counters, and you can remove a plus and plus one counter from Workhorse to add C to your mana pool. Uh, and the deck that this works particularly well in is Shirei, Shizo's Caretaker. Shirei is four and a black for a 2-2 two, two legendary spirit. Whenever a creature with power one or less is put into your graveyard from the battlefield, you may return that card to the battlefield at the beginning of the next end step if Shirei is still on the battlefield. Because by the time you've removed all these counters from Workhorse, it, it is a 0-0. Zero, zero. Uh, so it's naturally going to be brought back by Shirei. And because Shirei brings things back at the beginning of each end step, you could potentially get 16 mana per round of turns in a four-person game really significant amount of of mana being produced here it's it's pretty powerful and it's only seeing play in 13 of the 906 shirei decks on edh rec and that's about 1.43 percent this one this tech in particular kind of blows my mind because back when i started playing commander and people were exploring still the general populace was still learning about what cards were out there for the most part you had to use gatherer to search things shirei uh, was a commander that would pop up every now and then uh, nowhere near as good as he is now just there's so many more one and zero power guys 
in mono black that do things but pretty much anytime i saw a shira list which was pretty often uh, a lot of the kamigawa legends were more popular back then back in the day than they are now i feel like mm-hmm. workhorse was in all of those lists like any commander league i did when i would play with friends they always played workhorse it just seemed kind of like an auto include because it's basically just like you you put the down payment down the six mana down and you kind of always got four mana at your leisure so it seemed like a no-brainer and so when this stat was brought up i was really blown away and i think it's just because we've gotten so many more burglar rats and things <laughs> that uh, maybe people stopped looking at the little bit more clever zero power guys or guys that die when you remove the last counters from them i mean it, it could also be like the push downward of mana costs in the format maybe now Shirei is the top of your curve whereas like maybe 10 years ago or something decks were still reasonably expected to play six and seven mana spells a card that generates mana but costs six is a lot less appealing yeah i mean i definitely see that and i can understand why it looks bad on the surface but having seen it played and having seen the work that this card can really pull for a Shirei deck I I still am going to argue that I think it's worth it. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I think there's many, many good uh, mana outlets in these colors that you can pump it into. Yeah, and just the fact that if you have any sack outlet, this is another guy that not only is giving you what the sack outlet is giving you, but three mana on top of that. It's just crazy. It's it's so much value. Like I do understand that six is a lot when your commander costs five. But please, please give it a shot. Please try it for me. Please. I'm begging you. It's it's insane. The value is off the charts. Yeah. And of course, there's like, this is very, very close to comboing off with Nim Deathmantle all by itself. Oh, um, yeah. It just needs a little bit of a push. And then you could potentially get infinite mana. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just one more card, one more thing. And you're off. Let's move on to the next card. This comes to us uh, from Mark Churchwell. Thanks, Mark. Uh, So this is Ugin's Nexus, five-cost legendary artifact. If a player would begin an extra turn, that player skips that turn instead. And if Ugin's Nexus would be put into a graveyard from the battlefield, instead exile it and take an extra turn after this one. So the deck this works particularly well in is Vivictus Asmadi, the Dyer. Vivictus is three black, red, green for a 6-6 legendary Elder Dragon with flying. And whenever Vivictus attacks, for each player, choose target permanent that player controls. Those players sacrifice those permanents. Each player who sacrificed a permanent this way reveals the top card of their library, then puts it onto the battlefield if it's a permanent card. I still really have a soft spot for Vivictus, uh, this new one. We talked about when Corvold came out that this is kind of the... Corvold was the more positive version of Evictus, and I feel like put a little bit of shoe in my mouth with that one because Corvold just turned out to be so much more mm-hmm. than Evictus ever could have hoped or dreamed to be. But that being said, Evictus is still a really cool list and a really fun deck, and this just seems like such a freebie because you, you don't really have extra turns in jund color identity that don't at least come with a drawback so having your own pay five take an extra turn that that just seems like a no-brainer to me yeah there's a couple things i really like about this for one like in a vivictus deck you're likely to run a lot of haste graners uh so the play pattern tends to be like you know i do my setup i do a little bit of ramping i get my haste graner down 
Then I cast Vivictus and attack with it in the same turn, take care of some of my opponent's permanents. Hopefully I have something lying around um, that I'm okay with blowing up in order to flip into something. But then you're just passing the turn and you've just got this like 6-6 dragon turn sideways, you're tapped out. It's a really vulnerable position. But in that setup phase, you can drop down an Ugin's Nexus. Then, then you can like really make Vivictus's money go off because you're going to have that first turn where you're controlling your opponent and maybe just like sacking your Ugin's Nexus for value. But that second turn is where you can do things like playing some spells that'll set up the top card of your library, or doing maybe putting some protection into place so that Vivictus Esmati is less likely to be removed by your opponents. Uh, I think just getting that extra turn with Vivictus on the battlefield is going to be really big for this deck. Yeah, I don't really have much to say. I just think this is really cool. And it's surprising that it's only in 22 out of the 808 Vivictus decks on EDH Rec. So definitely a lot of room for, for adoption there. Yeah, I'm going to check the price on it too, because I'm pretty sure it's cheap. Oh, I, I believe it's uh, less than a dollar, in fact. Yeah, only 90 cents for an Ugin's Nexus. Yeah, if Time Warp was 90 cents. It'd be a hell of a deal, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty good. So do you want to move on to this next uh, next batch? Sure. Uh, so this next card is one that we've mentioned a bit before, but I just want to highlight a couple decks where it really should be seeing play, but isn't. So the card is Spreading Plague. It is four and a black for an enchantment. Whenever a creature enters the battlefield, destroy all other creatures that share a color with it. They can't be regenerated. And the two commanders we want to highlight are Erebos Bleak Hearted and Bantu the Glorified. So Erebos is three and a black for a five, six legendary enchantment creature god. It has indestructible. As long as your devotion to black is less than five, Erebos isn't a creature. Whenever another creature you control dies, you may pay two life. If you do, draw a card. And you can pay one in a black and sacrifice another creature to give target creature minus two, minus one until end of turn. And Bantu the Glorified is two and a black for a four six legendary creature god. It has menace and indestructible. It can't attack or block unless a creature died under your control this turn. And you can pay one and a black and sacrifice another creature to scry one. And each opponent loses one life and you gain one life. So both of these commanders are indestructible. So they are pretty resistant to the the symmetrical effect of spreading plague and they also want your other creatures to die Bantu so that she can attack and Erebos so that you can draw a card off of him you're you're naturally going to be running a lot of expendable creatures and you won't mind if most of them die to the spreading plague but i i pretty unlikely that your opponents are going to be immune to this plague spreading plague is one of these permanents where it is so oppressive and there are just games, especially, say, like a token list, where they just can't continue until they can deal with the Spreading Plague. And the splash damage off of Spreading Plague as well is is just bonkers because it's all the creatures that have that color. So someone might be sitting in the corner with their mono red list thinking they're safe from this, and then someone plays a Boros creature, and all of a sudden the red creature is is dead to it really just makes it so that anyone trying to get ahead on the board has to deal with this one permanent before they can kind of continue to build up and uh, especially bantu here where you typically are trying to get in with your like menace indestructible commander um you're typically trying to get value off of 
things dying, it just fits so perfectly into that that axis. Again, I'm gonna recommend trying spreading plague out. It's it's a a nightmare in a like a good way for you. Yeah, definitely one of those like symmetrical effects that are a little bit easier to break the symmetry on. So definitely a powerful card, and it's currently only seeing play in uh, zero out of 104 Erebos Bleak Carded decks and one out of 73 Bontu the Glorified decks. And in in terms of price, it's it's gotten a little bit more exposure over the years, but it's still only four dollars and sixteen cents TCG player market price. So you can definitely snap this up. And I think if you have an Erebos 2.0 or a Bantu 1.0 list, you should probably do so. So I think we have one more piece of tech. And this one comes to us from Kevin Kelly. Th- this one actually is really crazy. And I cannot believe that like we didn't think of this also. <laughs> yeah. Like like going through the set review, because this is a very recent card we're going to be talking about. But the tech is Una, Queen of the Fae. A 5-5 flying fairy wizard for three and then hybrid blue-black, hybrid blue-black, hybrid blue-black. So six CMC. She has X, hybrid blue-black. Choose a color. Target opponent exiles the top X cards of their library. For each card of the chosen color exiled this way, create a 1-1 blue and black fairy rogue creature token with flying. So Una, a popular commander, uh, a popular win condition, you end up usually making a lot of mana and exiling someone's library and that's that's uh more or less what you're doing here with this commander should i read her off too or yeah go ahead yeah so the commander that una goes very very well in is tazri beacon of unity from zendikar rising a four six human warrior uh, for four and a white but she costs one less for each creature in your party and then she has this really heinous uh, activated ability we've complained about. It's two brid, so two colorless and a color. Two brid blue, two brid black, two brid red, two brid green. Look at the top six cards of your library. You may reveal up to two cleric, rogue, warrior, wizard, and or ally cards from among them. Put them into your hand and put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. So you might be thinking like, Hey, Zach, why are you bringing this up? I, I understand Una's a wizard, but like this just seems like a fun casual commander. Like, what, what are you talking about? Well, one of the notable party enabling cards was this really, I, I would say, dismissible creature called Stonework Pack Beast. A Stonework Pack Beast is a 2-1 beast. It's an artifact creature for two generic. Is a cleric, rogue, warrior, and wizard in addition to being a beast. And it has two generic, add one mana of any color. So I was talking about infinite mana. This is basically what ends up happening here. You, you go infinite mana, usually infinite colorless. It's pretty easy to get infinite colorless, whether you're using Basalt Monolith or a Staff of Domination or whatever it might be. Um, sort of the parents and a, a creature. Infinite mana somehow. There's a, a billion ways to do it. Or or Nim Death Mantle, Suchi, Sack Outlet. like. Tons of things. You use Tazri. Uh, you cast Tazri and use her, uh, looking through your list until you can get Stonework Pack Beast. Because anything you don't pick goes on the bottom of the library, uh, waiting to get cycled through again. You play Stonework Pack Beast with your colorless mana, and all of a sudden you have infinite colors of mana as well. So you can go 
Tazri, cycle through till I get Stonework Pack Beast, cycle through till I get Una, and now I can cast Una because I have access to these colors of mana, and then just exile everyone's board. Just om nom nom nom, they're dead. That's it. <laughs> I mean, when we were evaluating Tazri initially, we were just sort of looking at like, if you're trying to activate this ability fairly, but you're getting a bad deal. Yeah, you are definitely getting a bad deal if you're trying to do it fair. But if you've got infinite mana, then this really uh, breaks wide open. So really want to thank Kevin for pointing this out to us. It seems like a great use of a commander that we were initially pretty low on. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And if you check on Tazri's page, currently only eight of the 255 Tazri decks are running Una Queen of the Fey. So it seems like most people haven't really caught on to this tech yet. It really did change my perspective on Tazri too, because going from, oh, bad activated ability, like kind of a weak build around, not super exciting, to basically a, a five color combo list really changed my perspective. Not that I'm saying I want to play against or with the five color combo list more than the theme list, but it's definitely cooler (laughs) it definitely has a lot more going on a lot more play to it i had to rethink the list completely because of this one card and this one interaction yeah it just goes to show that you can't really like dismiss any one card uh when you're looking at commander because like stonework pack beast is uh really doing a lot of work in this case and it's so easy to just like file it in the garbage can of your mind as draft chaff yeah and it is i would say i think most of the time an effect like this is bad and i still am a proponent for stonework pack beast is bad but the fact that it doesn't need to be in your hand and it all of a sudden you just find it and combo off it it changes it it puts it on this whole other tier of combo engines and just really didn't think about that when Tazri was spoiled, which actually kind of gets to something that I wanted to talk about in particular. Like we haven't really been doing too many deck techs lately. And I this isn't like a conscious thing that me and Nick have talked about, but it's more, I think, like an unconscious thing where we've we've kind of realized that unless the commander is super confusing, we just don't think it's as enlightening to a lot of listeners or to a lot of players especially if you're listening to this show uh, we really try to make sure the show is something that we would want to listen to as like really enfranchised magic players and i don't necessarily need to listen to someone explaining like let's say a uh, an una deck might win the game I- i've seen una i i know what she does i know how to get infinite mana i know a lot of combos but stuff like this and stuff like this episode i think is a lot more fun and i think a lot more helpful and it's like why we've been doing the custom commanders episode. And I, I think we're going to keep trying to do spicy tech like this episodes just because they kind of show you a lot about the format, how people are thinking and uh, ways to improve your deck. But I, I just don't think, especially after interacting with so many people over the years now and so many like patrons and, and people when we could go to magic fests and things like that, the idea of like an optimum list is so nebulous in commander that I think there are hyper-tuned strategies or preferred strategies as opposed to the the best version of a list if that makes sense so Mm -hmm. these tech episodes this one and ones we do in the future this is to help you find stuff to put into your list because i i don't think commander decks are ever finished and i think if you're listening to this you might agree with me so these are just some cool things tell your friends about 
And I think just changing the verbiage that we use, the diction about building commander lists will be a lot more positive to people. It'll make people more more willing to change and try out things when you move from an optimum list to like a like cool tech or or stuff like that. Yeah. Uh one of the reasons like I am am a little less inclined to do deck techs on the show unless they're really out there is just because like I kind of operate with the assumption that if you're listening to this podcast, you're like really familiar with EDH rec and there's a lot of decks that you can build just kind of from looking at the EDH rec page. And so what I like to focus on with the content that we produce is the things that you can't find on EDH rec or maybe like sort of the meta level, what does EDH rec tell us? So like this episode is all about tech you can't find on EDH rec. We've also done episodes in the past that like really aggregate EDH rec data or look at it from a really high level to try to sort of make generalities about the format. That's kind of I think where we're at with our content right now, rather than focusing on individual decks that are already kind of out there in the ether. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and that is not to say that me and Nick don't have deck lists that are kind of off the wall or out there or or things like that. It's not that we're not trying these things or that we we won't ever do a deck tech again. I I think especially when we have guests on, those are fun things to talk about. And it might be enlightening to hear a deck tech about something that's really complicated. But for the most part, the insight that stuff like this gives you into the format. And and really, I do want to hammer this home, like kind of getting into the zeitgeist of what people are talking about is a lot easier to see when you look at the format from this angle. Like the fact that so few people are playing Una or Spreading Plague really kind of helps you realize what people are thinking about when they're deck building, when they're searching through cards, and kind of gives you a broader sense and I think a more accurate sense of what is going on in Commander than just something that you could kind of Google on your own. So that said, if you have any spicy tech, please let us know. Uh, We will... We'll give you credit. We'll talk about it. These are things that have just incredibly small percentages on EDHREC, but are incredibly good in the list that you would put them in. We know there's more out there. This is just what... Yeah, we we had a... Well, we wanted to keep it to 10 for this episode. Uh, We've got some other ideas from folks, and uh, we have those in our back pocket. But we would like to do more of these in the future. and, And definitely, please, if you know of some secret tech that is not anywhere on EDH rec, then go ahead and send it in. We're really excited to hear what the community's brewed up. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, honestly, it's fun for people to to hear about. Like, even if I don't have a Shiray list, it's interesting to go, oh, wow, Workhorse isn't in Shiray? Like, that's, that's kind of mind-boggling. And uh, we hope that's fun for you guys, too. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you again to Alex Whiteclay, Mark Churchwell, and Kevin Kelly for submitting some of these pieces of secret tech. And thank you to all of our Patreon patrons, including Bradley, Gustav, Ryan, Mark, Addison, Mason, Rick, Laser, Raphael, Kyle, Charlotte, Andrew, Tom, the Whiteclays, Aubrey, Hannah, Anthony, Andy, Dylan, James, Justin, Logan, Roger, David, Evan, Bryce, Dylan, Benjamin, Jason, Kyle, Jerry, Brandon, Eamon, Kevin, Matthew, Jamie, Russell, Kaidel, and Jeremy. Thank you all for supporting the show. And if you are not currently a Patreon patron, but would like to become one, please check us out at patreon.com slash commander theory. Thanks for listening. 
If any of you theorists want to get in touch with us, I am at Commander Theory on Twitter and Tumblr, and Zach is at Fat Bartleby on Twitter. Our theme song is Lincoln Continental by Entropy, and you can check them out on SoundCloud. Until next time, we're going back to the drawing board. <laughs>